in this VMO role, which you've done over during those nine years, what fascinates me is actually what this person is doing. I don't, yeah. I don't mean offense by <laughs> what that. What do they do? Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> I'm a big fan of brand namings, confession of B2B marketer. That's awesome. It's fun. It's different. It's unique. It's memorable. All those little details make a big impact. Hello and welcome to Confessions of a B3 Marketer. My name is Tom, your host, and today we have Bill Mekaitis, a legend in the B2B marketing game, ex-CMO at Salesforce, Zendesk, and Slack. And so today we dig into what he does, what a CMO actually does. That's the first thing we talk about. And then we go into more detail on his view of PLG and the power of brand. But before we get to that, let's give a massive shout out to fame.so. They are the producers of this show. We recently launched something called the free B2B podcast growth audit. We'll link to that below. If you have a podcast in your B2B business right now, click on that link, send us your, you'll go to a webpage, you'll put the link to your show, you put your email address. In 48 to 72 hours later, we'll give you a Google Doc that myself or someone in the team are going to produce, which is going to give you an audit on your show. So go and do that. Let's jump into the discussion with Bill now. Bill, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Tom. So it was an incredible nine years. The Salesforce to Zendesk to Slack years. What a run for B2B <laughs> marketing, right? <laughs> it was a lot of fun, yes. Because it's almost like you picked the one to ride their like the best growth period from my understanding of the journey of those companies, especially Slack at that time. Was that, would you say out of the three? That was the most like exciting growth path or the others better? They were all unique. They all had their fun. I think for Slack, what was fun is I came on as CMO, but there are only about 50 people and there really wasn't a marketing team at that point. So it was just a, a blast to build that up from scratch to help shape the messaging, the pricing and packaging, the brand, all these other elements that I loved. It's one of the things about B2B marketing that has always been fun and also frustrated me is that I feel like it's a lot of times a decade or two behind the B2C type tactics and strategy and brand. And so when I'm able to go into a company and I did a very similar thing as Zendesk, I came in as CMO and built up the marketing team. But when I come in, when there's this white space where you don't have a thousand things that they've already done and that maybe are dated, but you just get to come up with a brand new brand and playbook, that gets super exciting to me. And, and that was super fun about Slack. Very political answer, but also a good one. We're going to get to brand later in this discussion, because especially with Slack, I think what you guys did really well of getting into the product and using that to share the brand, but that's for later. <laughs> First, I want to cover all the structure of this discussion is going to be like career. Yeah. Then I want to talk about PLG, which I know you're passionate about, and then also brand. Sounds great. So I want to first understand these three awesome jobs. And you had great jobs before that as well, great roles. But how did they come about? Because we may have people listening that maybe want to get an earlier stage marketing job, these big B2B brands. How did you actually manage to get into these companies? Yeah, I think a lot of times it just depends on the level and the role. So for me, I had done about 15 years on the B2C side. I had founded my own company. I had worked for several large media companies. And I actually got reached out by an internal recruiter at Salesforce. And they're like, hey, Mark would like to speak. You know, we, wow. they want to bring in some more B2C DNA into the company. And I think that's something that I really admire about Mark is he's very open-minded and go-to-market and infusing the best of B2C and B2B. And 
when I came on, it was kind of this pitch of like, hey, Salesforce, we're doing things differently, right? <laughs> we're kind of building this cloud ecosystem and new platforms and new ways to buy and sell and use software. And so I just get really excited about that. That's always in my DNA is I like more modern, innovative ways to do go to market. And at the same time, I tend to lean towards products that are also trying to be innovative and modern. And so it was just a great match there. And I guess that was the same. It's almost like you rode that wave of B2B companies becoming more fun, having better brands, right? With Salesforce first. I'm not so sure about Zendesk, but definitely Slack. It's almost like the quality and the funness of their tool is like, I don't know, like a B2C brand. And then for the other two, so Zendesk and Slack, I assume it was like through network or recruiters that you landed those roles. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I'd say like when you start moving into like the VP, SVP, CMO, a, a large source of those jobs and recruiting are going to either be internal recruiters, headhunters, or VCs. So when I went to Zendesk, that was more of a VC that I knew that had brokered that introduction for or going to Slack. That was another VC it was actually an internal recruiting team at the VC that brokered it. I would say early on, though, and I've seen this work for a lot of people that are maybe a little earlier in their careers that really like a company that they love and enjoy. It's just like follow a person, follow the marketing leader. If you're in analytics, follow the head of marketing ops and look at every single piece of content she's put out and all the conferences she's spoken at and follow them and ask them questions. And I've seen a lot of people that are able to get themselves in a company via that path, send them a direct message, send them a LinkedIn request. Just show that, hey, you're really passionate about it. You want to learn about the company and really learn it. Like don't the first conversation, don't go in like knowing nothing about the company, like research every single thing about it. I do think like a lot of companies really respect that. Like, wow, this person went on their own and they did a lot of research and hard work. I think there's always opportunities to get in there. One other piece of advice I give too is a lot of you, as you start going through your career, you'll get a lot of calls from or you'll start getting calls from headhunters. And sometimes you won't even be looking. And I always thought it was really important to every time you get those calls or those emails, actually answer them and be nice. Because a lot of times, too, they're just looking for a role. And even if you're not available, like, oh, well, actually, I'm not available right now, but I know this person might be a really good fit. Help them out, right? Develop those relationships because it does open a lot of doors as you progress throughout your career. Great actionable advice. And my next point to move on to is like in this CMO role, which you've done over during those nine years, what fascinates me is actually what this person is doing. I don't, yeah. I don't mean offense by <laughs> what that. What do they do? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And so from somebody who's done that for three different B2B companies, I would love to know like the day-to-day. -day. Yeah, it's a great question, Tom. And it's interesting because I think there's a lot of different playbooks on what you do in that role. Personally, for me, I thought the biggest themes I tried to stay on was one, you know, develop a strategic direction for the team. Two, hire great teams, and three, eliminate blockers. So once you've got the direction, empower your people, and you're really a servant to your team, right? You go to them and go, hey, where are you stuck? Where do you need help? Where are you blocked? Do you need more budget? Do you need more team members? Are you having trouble with a different team? How can I help? You're there to help reduce friction and move the wheels. So those are the three big areas that I always stood up for. You're there to inspire the team. You're there to set the direction. You're there to build a great team and you're there to help eliminate blockers. Everyone takes different approaches though. Some people are very micromanaging. I would still like to get in some projects, but I didn't feel the need to be in every single project. I think at some point, if you're a CMO and you're doing that, you're actually like slowing down the team. I think it's really important to figure out what are the metrics that drive your team to, right? Like metrics drive performance. And so you really want to think about what are the right types of metrics, whether those are branding metrics, funnel metrics, customer experience type metrics. Those are 
really important decisions. That's how I did it. You're certainly in a lot of meetings. The more you go up, just the more meetings you are. And you hit a point where literally your entire day is meetings. And some people like that. Some people detest that. But I always loved working with other great marketers. And it was just a dream for me in those roles. Did you ever wake up and think, I just would love to write some copies today? And then told the copywriter <laughs> that to move out of the way I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the fun thing. You have CMO prerogative and same thing with CEOs too, right? Like CMO CEOs, like you have a prerogative, a right to just say, hey, are there certain projects that you're really passionate about that you want to be a part of? And then you can be a part of those. That being said, I do think for CMO CEOs, like if you're going to be in a project, you have to be in it, right? You can't just like drop in halfway through. We did a lot of like larger ad campaigns and it was really frustrating. Not necessarily the CEO, but sometimes an exec would drop in that hadn't been part of like the creative brief, hadn't been part of all the meetings with the agency, just drop in and give their feedback and leave. And I kind of think like, if you want to be involved in a project, you need to be in it. It just helps the sanity for the team. Moving from CMO to CRO, which is a move that you made at Slack that I found super interesting, because I think if we did a survey of all CROs, X size companies in the world, a larger chunk of them would maybe be from the sales function and the marketing function. And so I would love to know this, like with that strategic move by yourself and the Slack leadership, that we want somebody who's has a deep expertise in B2C marketing to be the CRO of this business. Yeah, sure. So for Slack specifically, when I came on, I did come on as CMO and I was leading up the marketing team. And pretty soon thereafter, I also took on sales success and support. I kind of had a unique wow. background of being a Salesforce. I got to know sales pretty well. <laughs> Bring it Zendesk. I got to know support and success pretty well. And I'd also in previous on my B2C side, I'd run and manage some of those teams as well. So it was a really good fit. I think when I would talk with Stuart, we were both extremely customer centric. And we always thought of the brand as the sum of every single interaction that you have with the company. And in B2B, a lot of those interactions tend to be with these customer facing teams, these sales teams, these marketing teams, these success teams, these support teams. Sometimes you have more interactions there than you do with the product itself, definitely even in the beginning and definitely if you're selling to like mid-market or enterprise. So we wanted to have all those teams under one leader. Now, whether you call that a CRO role, a COO role, a CCO role, chief customer officer, chief operating officer, chief revenue officer, I think that's like semantics at that point. It's who has the background and who's passionate about those topics. And I really was, and I, I'm also really passionate about not having these teams be in silos. I do think when you think about the experience, you do need to have all these teams working together to deliver like a great buying experience, deliver a great discovery experience, deliver a great onboarding experience. And it just was kind of a natural fit. Makes total sense. I have to ask, because you've worked with these incredible entrepreneurs, I actually don't know who, who was managing you during Zendesk. It should have been in my research, um, but it wasn't one of the founders. Oh, that was Mikkel. That was the CEO there. Yeah. Cool. But he wasn't a founder, right? He was. Yeah, he was. He was. They were I think there were three founders of Zendesk and he was one of them. So he was still there when I was there. I think he's subsequently moved on. But yeah, like it really in all three, I was working directly with the founder slash CEO. That is incredible. Is there anything that either of them or maybe just one or two of them did that you were like, wow, that's incredible. I like that they all challenged preconceived notions on how to build a business, how to run a business. I love that Mark Benioff, he's this incredible philanthropist. He's a big guy, too. He's like 6'6". Six, six. He's just a big guy, like very imposing, but he's just like a teddy bear in a lot of ways, right? He's really passionate. He's like a, I think a fourth or fifth generation San Franciscan. He's really passionate about the city and helping causes out. 
I really respected that. And Stuart and I, we hit it off right away because he, again, he has a very similar customer centric view of life, right? Like he told me a story and I totally agreed with it. It's like, hey, when you go to a restaurant, your perception of that restaurant is not just the food they deliver. A lot of times it's like the first perception is maybe you drove, maybe you, there's a valet person. What was that experience? Was it nice? Were they helpful? Did they drive your car nice? Or was it <laughs> you hear the tires screeching going off for a joyride? When you come in, the host, what is that interaction? Is the restaurant too hot? Is it too cold? When you sit down, what's that for server experience? If maybe that server's busy, does another server come up, maybe fill up your water? What's the music like? There's all these, the ambience, there's all these interactions beyond just the food. And I think in a lot of ways, it's very similar to software, right? For those of us in B2B SaaS software space, a lot of people think, oh, it's just the software. That's all that matters. And it's like, no, that's a big part, right? We do go to a restaurant to eat. So we do go to these SaaS services to use the software. But there's all these other interactions that either deliver these incredible, delightful experiences or deliver these painful experiences. And that is a marketer or someone who's concerned about growth of the company. If you're delivering horrible experiences left and right, you're just minting out detractors. I'm a big net promoter score guy, right? I always wanted to work with CEOs, and I think Stuart was one of them, and also boards. I think that's really important, too. If you're looking at leading up marketing at a company, get to know the CEO and their philosophy, but also the board, and find ones that align with your values. For me, it was a very customer-centric viewpoint, and the board and, and Stuart were very supportive of that. Makes total sense. Let's move from career onto PLG, product-led growth. First question, or what I'd love to dig into, and again, either of the three companies, if possible, like a specific strategy or maybe mini feature that helps drive growth through the product? Yeah, great, great question. So I am super passionate about PLG and maybe even as a backdrop, I'll give you my definition of what I think product-like growth is. I think there's a lot of different viewpoints on this. For me, what product-like growth is, it just means that, hey, just like in people's consumers' lives, they spend a lot more time in the product now. We like to think as B2B marketers, everybody's going to our blog and reading our emails, but really they're just in the product, right? That, that's where they are. And so when you have people spending more time in the product, both in pre-discovery as well as after they've bought the software, you really have to think about how do you infuse your marketing in the product? How do you infuse your sales process in the product, your support in the product? And that can manifest in a lot of ways, right? That can manifest for having live chat support in the product. That's support moving in the product, right? In sales, you can have high velocity or ability of people to see pricing ahead of time or actually upgrade while they're in the product. And marketing, that can mean your editorial tone and voice in the product, your visual identity in the product, in product messaging and education and cross-pollination, all these different elements. And I think that's really important. Now, product-led growth, I think is really tough because it's easy to talk about, but what that basically means is you're working really cross-functionally. Marketing is not in a silo writing blog content and running an ad. It's like you're literally have to work with product people. Sales folks have to work with product, with finance. All these teams are cross-functionally working together to pull off a PLG motion. And it's very difficult. As far as your specific question, I would say each one had a different element. So the big thing about Salesforce and Salesforce is like the grandfather of SaaS now. But you got to remember, for those of us in B2B SaaS software or B2B software, before there was SaaS, like you literally... The only way you would tell software is you would have to wine and dine a CTO or CIO, take her to golf courses and steak dinners, and eventually get them to buy a piece of software for the support team. When this CIO or CTO has never even used support software and doesn't even touch it 
after they bought it. And it was much more about like how effective your sales team was at just whining and dining and getting them to buy these really big deals. And then what I really loved about Mark and PLG is he came along and he said, hey, he was inspired by Amazon. Like, how can I go to Amazon and look around and buy all this stuff? But with business software, you can't do that. What if we just actually make the business software like a web page, right? And people could go there and experience it and use it. But by doing that, one of the really creative, brilliant things was, okay, all of a sudden this new avenue opens up like a totally different buyer. You don't always have to go to the CIO, CTO. Now people can just use the software. They don't need an implementation team. They don't need CIO, CTO, the tech team to build it up on servers and run it and get it ready. Like you could just start using it. So all of a sudden that dramatically changed go to market. And I would argue that's a PLG motion, right? Like people could directly go and start using the software. So that was brilliant, right? I think Zendesk, maybe on the pricing and packaging side, they had a concept of a free trial, which is more common now, but still back then it wasn't as common, right? Like a lot of still now B2B companies only have paid plans. I was very comfortable with that. And it's one of the reasons I advocated for it because in, you know, 15 years of consumer life, I'd done a bunch of freemium plans. So I was really familiar. We did a free trial. We did... Zendesk was, in the early days, it was Love Your Help Desk. It was a big Buddha. It was like, it, was a little, it had definitely had consumer elements to it. And then I would argue like Slack for PLG, where they really pushed the needle was a, a number of areas. Like one, infusing editorial tone and voice into the product. So a lot of times what will happen is you'll build your product and you'll have developers build it because that's what they do, right? And developers will write their own prompts. And I love developers, but most of them will be pretty dry copy, right? Especially during that onboarding flow. And so what we did is like we had some of our best people that could do unique tone and voice that we developed in marketing. We said, hey, let's put this in the product. Let's go back and rewrite every single prompt and the sign up flow and let's make it fun and whimsical and not use acronyms and just have some moments of delight there, right? Or let's infuse our visual identity into the product. A lot of people are always like, Bill, we need a brand, but we don't have $20 million. I'm like, great, like just you can do it for free. Take your visual identity and put it in the product right? So many B2B SaaS software products are God awful, sterile, white background, black text, like just infuse some color in there, have some fun with it, create some Easter eggs. That was a big thing we did. We had a true freemium model. Most SaaS companies didn't have that where you had a true free plan with time delay threshold upgrade drivers that were huge for conversion. We only charged you, especially for the SMBs, if someone was actually using the product, if people dropped off, they hadn't used it in 14 days, we'd send the admin a note and be like, hey, Sally's no longer using the product. We're going to give you a refund or credit back for, for her thing. Like that was very unfound of, right? Like changing your metric to a product like growth metric, like daily active users, like you don't get paid unless your customer has success. They're aligning the two together there. So there are a lot of different elements. I do think that PLG is often a very underrated element of go-to-market. And just go-to-market is underrated. A lot of B2B SaaS founders that I work with, because I do, you know, advisor and board roles for these companies, Sometimes they'll have a really innovative product, but they'll just take a 30-year-old dated go-to-market model. And I'm like, hey, if you really want to succeed and thrive and really dominate a category, like some of your companies I've worked with, like you have to adopt a more modern go-to-market model. And I think PLG is a big part of that. To add on to something I heard you say on a recent interview on a different show, you were talking about how opening up the free plan enables you to, if you get it right, build this army of people who will be your like advocates. And so that have to, I assume, be added into the calculation when you're being like, okay, we're going to have to spend $10 per user per month on server costs. But if we get this right, they're going to bring us X amount of users in the future because they're going to love us and tell their friends. Is that the kind of calculations that maybe you were doing or you suggest a company that's considering doing a free trial to do? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I'm a big measurement guy. I think in SaaS, you can measure these things. And what you'll find is for a lot of marketing leaders out there, they'll go out and their CFO or CEO will go, we need a bunch of leads. Like, go get us leads, right? And a lot of times they have to go buy those leads. They have to go to LinkedIn or they have to buy email lists or they have to run physical events. And you'll get marketing, you'll get like a cost per lead, right? And that might be, depending on your segment, that might be $100, that might be $1,000, right? For some of these enterprise SaaS companies. But the basic idea is like, hey, you're buying leads. That's one way to grow is buy a lead. My philosophy, and again, I was just very comfortable with freemium type models and conversion and all that, was that a big thing of freemium is you just have a lot more people using it. And so when you have more people using it, your brand awareness goes up, your A to recall, your unaided recall, whatever metric you're using. And you're essentially like you're hiring free marketers. That's the way I always viewed it. Like Slack, we had like 6 million free users when I was there. I viewed it as I had just hired 6 million independent contractors focused on marketing, talking about our company. Is there a cost to those people? Sure. There's bandwidth costs, there's support costs, there's some other, they're not a big cost, but let's say it comes out to like a dollar per user. I'm just throwing that number out there. If I have to have a dollar per user for these 6 million people that are constantly talking and spreading the word, or I have to spend $10 a user or 100 or 1,000 on these different page handles, that's a much, much cheaper way to grow. A lot of times when you have a freemium plan, some people go, oh, we just want free trial, we just want 14 days. Think about it. Like that'd be essentially saying, okay, all these people that might be talking about your product, the ones that won't pay, and some won't, a lot of SMB segments is very price sensitive. You're essentially saying you're fired. Okay, I'm not using you as a independent marketing contractor anymore. So I like, I always liked it from that standpoint. And that does get into the customer centricity. Like when you develop and build and give these users great, delightful experiences, they tend to recommend you more. And you can measure that, net promoter score, CSAT, whatever it is. But having an army of people that talk about you and recommend you, even if they're quote unquote free, or even if they quote unquote have a cost, in a lot of ways is much, much cheaper than the alternative, which is you're spending a lot of money on expensive campaigns to get it. So moving on to another method of bringing in more customers, potentially for cheaply if you do it right, is brand. Now, we have somebody here who has architected or been part of the architecture, let's say, of three awesome B2B SaaS brands. What would you say is the secret? Well, first off, thank you. I would say the secret is for me in B2B, just pretend you're not part of a B2B organization. Just pretend you're part of a company and take the best elements from all over the world. I think everyone has a product in their life that they love, that they're just like, oh my God, it's such a great product. I just love that brand. We're willing to talk about it and buy a lot of it. And you want to have that same scenario with a B2B company. And a lot of times, Again, I talked about it earlier, but there's these traditional norms in B2B, right? I don't know what it is, but it's like, oh, we've always done it this way. We have to do it this way. Like we have to run events. We have to do top-down sales. We have to do fill in the blank. And one of them is we have to be really boring. We have to speak in acronyms. We have to always be black and white and never take any risks. And what I found was that people will love a brand regardless if it's B2C or B2B. And if you spend time building a brand you will be rewarded for that. You will have a higher net promoter score. You have more people talk about, recommend you. People that buy from you will be more loyal. You will have higher net expansion. All the SaaS metrics tend to flow great to companies that have a brand. It's also a great moat for you. Very defensible. And building a brand, again, what is a brand? For me, a brand is the sum of every single interaction that someone has with you. 
And so if you're like, okay, if you buy into that, the restaurant example, you buy into that and you go, okay, well, then you have to think about, okay, who are all the teams and people that are delivering these experiences? How do I work with those teams within my company to deliver more positive experiences? What are the metrics? How do they get promoted? How do they get paid? Maybe we're using the wrong metrics, right? Like it's Slack. We went to the sales team. It was under me. It was easy. <laughs> and I was like, hey, we are going to look at how much you sell and all that. But we're also going to start looking at, we're going to run a CSAT survey after someone buys from you. And we're going to survey them and we're going to go, hey, Jenny was your account executive. How responsive was she? How knowledgeable was she? How helpful was she? How courteous was she? Whatever values you think would deliver a great experience, right? And then score them. Or maybe score like what's the net, net promoter score of, of the accounts that you're bringing in? Are you being honest about what we deliver? Or are you all of a sudden they bought it and they're like, oh my God, you told us all these things and they don't even exist. I think you can incentivize teams to deliver better experiences. And that's part of the brand. Now, the brand, there is fun stuff we talked about earlier, right? You don't need a, I'm not a big believer. You need a $20 million budget. Put your brand in the product. That's the easiest way. Have some fun with it. Have a different tone and voice. Put a visual identity in your software. Have some Easter eggs. Like, that's a great way for people to get familiar with it. And at the highest level, marketing, measure that stuff, right? Don't just have funnel metrics. Too many B2B teams only, the only metric I see is like leads right? You should have some brand metrics. You should have aided recall, unaided recall, sentiment, sure voice, sure conversation, whatever. Pick some, but those should be part of it. Ultimately, I've always believed brand is long-term leads and demand into short-term leads. If you can make those investments, oh my God, it really pays off. And I think B2B companies are ripe for that. Me coming from B2C, I would see all the time, these amazing brands and I worked with them and I helped build them. But in B2B landscape, a lot of times you don't even have a brand team. You don't have anyone that's thinking about those metrics. You're not even tracking the metrics. And I found it's a really cost-effective way to grow a company long-term. The Slack salesperson analysis example, I think is such a good one. And it's like these tiny, small things behind the scenes that end up building this incredible brand. It's like the logo that you guys had. It's like the small things you put inside the product. I, I guess my next question then is, obviously at Slack, it was probably easy because you controlled, not controlled, but you, you were working with the sales <laughs> the service team. But let's say a CMO or a marketing lead is listening and they want to impact the copy within the product or they want to incentivize the service agents to do this. What's your advice for them to influence those teams? I would say, A, just recognize it. It is what it is. It's a change management exercise. Like, are you, I'm a very passionate, high energy guy, but you have to spend a lot of cycles on building relationships with the board, the CEO, the rest of the C-suite, explaining them why you believe a customer-centric approach is going to help us grow faster, is going to be better for sales, is going to be better for product. Show those win situations, you know, and use some political capital towards it, right? Believe in it and think about what your teams are currently being measured by, right? A lot of support teams are measured by how many tickets they answer in an hour, in a day. Is that a good experience metric? I don't know. That kind of incentivizes you to like have those interactions be like six seconds each and never let someone talk to a live person and that's not a really good metric if you're about experience, right? Or even in SaaS, just incentivizing someone to just get that first sale is a really bad proxy because SaaS, half your revenue usually comes from add and upgrade expansion. You want them to stay with you. You don't want to oversell or underdeliver. There's so many reasons why, but you do have to just think about it. And no matter who you are in the company, if you join the army of people that are like, hey, I believe in a customer-centric approach and I'm going to run my team that way, or even if I'm not running my team, I'm going to talk to my team and advocate for that approach, I think you slowly start to get that flywheel moving in that direction. It's all coming together now. So 
First, I think, to summarize why I think this is going to be so powerful for the listeners, first, we have to understand what a brand is, which is a summary of all of the customer interactions with your business. And so I think realizing that you have to have this customer-centric approach. And then once you have that clarity, it's your job as the person within marketing to go and evangelize that approach to other functions of the business to help you do all the things you need to do as a business in order to delight customers, ideally at every touch point. So that's like the, the whole theory, but I guess it sounds relatively simple, but much harder to execute within an actual business. Much harder. And I do have a lot of companies that will reach out to me and want to work with me. And it's a very common scenario where I'll see a B2B SaaS enterprise company that skips straight to enterprise, that didn't never went to SMBs or mid-market. And they always say the same thing, like, Bill, no one knows about us. Hey, like every time we go into a sales call, we have to start at ground zero, explain everything from start. These are really long deal cycles. And it's one of the reasons I advocate for like, hey, don't skip SMB or mid-market because when you do the SMB, you have to build, you have to think about like how you're delivering these experiences at scale and you have to start building up a more customer-centric approach. And I will say too, it's a lot easier to build these when you start you know, for those that are listening, they're part of smaller companies, you have a really excellent chance to make that transformation very quickly. I have worked with larger companies as part of these transformations, and it just takes time, right? They've just, they're doing it one way. They've been doing it this way for a long time. They've hired people that only believe in that way. It is a change management exercise, and you just have to realize what you're walking into and devote the, you know, appropriate calories to it. Bill, thank you. Thank you for coming on and sharing the wisdom. I want to direct anybody who I guess is in with it, is working within a B2B company, I assume probably a bigger one, and that needs this kind of advice. Where should they go? Obviously, they can search for you on LinkedIn. Yeah, just go to LinkedIn, shoot me an intro and happy to have a conversation to see if I can help out or if it's a good fit on both sides. But I love doing this stuff. By the way, before we go, I have to say I'm a big fan of brand namings, confession of B2B marketer. That's awesome. It's fun. It's different. It's unique. It's memorable. All those little details make a big impact. I really appreciate that, Bill. We'll link to your LinkedIn below. If anybody's listening, go and check Bill out. And yeah, I just want to say thank you because obviously you've been through the journey, done this awesome stuff, and now you're coming back and sharing the wisdom for free with, with the B2B world. So Bill, thank you so much for coming on. No worries. Thanks again for having me, Tom. I really enjoyed it. All right. Hope you enjoyed that, Bill. What an absolute legend. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for listening. If you have any feedback, please go to Apple Podcasts leave a rating review, send me a screenshot and I'll get you a shout out in a future episode of the show. We must, of course, thank Fame, the business that I also happen to own, the producer of the show, Fame.so. We start and grow podcasts for B2B businesses. And then finally, and the second time in this outro, we have to thank you for listening. <laughs>